0: What's up, guys? Thanks for stopping by. We're doing new mic setup, so hopefully this goes good. I don't have to do it twice. But thanks for stopping by. Zach Hergert, Idea Attic Podcast, broadcasting from the top floor of WIFM, and anywhere podcasts can be found. Share this podcast with uh, someone you love, someone you hate. Share it with a family member. Share it with a stranger. Just share it. Sharey, share, share. Follow me on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Uh, I almost said Twitter. I'm not on Twitter. Um, I'm not really a fan of Twitter. And let me tell you why. I feel like social media is good in a lot of ways. You can learn a lot. You can connect with a lot of people. But social media also gives people a voice who don't really need a voice. And in some cases don't deserve a voice. And a lot of times I'll post something on even like Facebook and people I know or people that see the post will try to debate me on things. <clears throat> and that's a real pet peeve of mine because I'm not on there to debate. You don't just get to debate me. Uh, if I comment on something or post something, I'm not – it's not like a two-way street. I'm going to say my thing and then move on. You know, if I, if somebody says something that I don't like, I don't – you don't just get to debate someone. I don't understand that concept. It's like if I went on like Bill Maher's show – and said something I didn't agree with and I was on the crowd. I couldn't just stand up and start debating him. It. So it's like, I'm not on the same like intellectual plane as a lot of the people that want to debate me. So it's like, what, what the fuck are you doing? Like, who do you think you are? I don't understand that. It's just an idiotic concept. So if you see me post something on social media that you don't like, don't try to draw me into a debate because it's not going to work. So just an example one of my friends put something up on Facebook and it was a little controversial and he had like tons and tons of comments. And I don't know if he was just trolling people for comments or whatever, but he was going back and forth with another kid that I knew from high school. And I said something and then one of the other kids was like trying to debate me and I was like getting like really irritated. So I was like typing out my response to this kid with like, you know, all my, all my, uh, footnotes and everything like well thought out like argument and then it's like what the fuck am I doing like the kid I'm debating I don't even think finished high school I think he lost his driver's license permanently when he was like 24 or 25 it's like what like what I'm like crawling down in the gutter with you you're like a scab on the face of humanity so it's like no so anyway that's my opening rant but so I'm not on Twitter I have an account on Twitter, but I never post. I'm not, no one follows me. I don't really have any followers. I just use it to uh, uh, keep up on all my Las Vegas Twitter accounts so I can, I know what's going on there. But anyway, so like, let's get into it. And uh, today, today I kind of want to like unpack a little bit of what I was talking about in the last episode. And the last episode, I feel like I was really shitting on corporate, corporate America. And I was really shitting on the concept of just having one job, you know, like having having like one job at one employer and trying to like stick with it from day one until like the day you retire. And obviously I talked a little bit about some of the problems with that, with that, but I kind of like want to go over some, some of the specific issues that I see with that and just some other things. So the biggest problem with having a job is that you have all of your eggs in one basket. So I would even say like, think of yourself as like a contractor or think of yourself as like a brand or like you're you're your own business. And I think like in some corporate jobs are like, you have to develop your brand within the company. You have to be you know your own little business. So think of yourself like a little business, and you have a hundred percent. You only have one client, and you do a hundred percent of business with them. And what happens in like every relationship? And I'm not talking about a. a I'm not talking about a marriage or like a, a a romantic relationship. I'm talking about like a business relationship. It goes on. It keeps going on until somebody fucks up. And then when somebody fucks up, that relationship is over. And the problem is, if you only have one client and the relationship is over, then you're not going to have any income anymore. So that's like the biggest problem I see with just having like one job at one, at one company. The other thing is, you're missing a lots of opportunities, and you're not making very much money for the job you're doing. So let's drill down on that a little bit. Now when you have a job at a big corporation, no matter what corporation that you're in, and you can read this in like every management book under the sun, but I think probably the e-myth by Michael Gerber talks about this in like the simplest terms and when you manage a business even like a, a medium to small size business so once you get past like having one or two employees you have to implement something called the game and the game is administered if you're a small business and you're the owner you're the administrator of the game the in administrator of the game sorry uh, and what the game is is it's a way to motivate your employees outside of just money and the game never ends. The start is when you start at the job and then it never ends till the employer is done with you. So what happens with the game is they keep dangling a carrot in front of you basically to give you like a re- rewards for like the work you've done or they give you promotions, but it's usually not like tied specifically to money so the game is to motivate you to like not let down the team, like get the project done, get a, get a, uh, uh outstanding performer award, or everything like that, but it's never really like tied to money. It could be t- tied to a promotion. That's a small amount of money that you're going to be increasing if you only go one step up on the corporate ladder. And a lot of times, once you start climbing up on the corporate ladder, you're also an administrator of the game, but you probably don't ever know it. So let's say you're a salesman. And to keep your job, you have to have so many sales. And then to be a top performer, you have to have so many sales. But then once you get a promotion from um, a salesman to a sales manager, your goal of the game is a little bit different. And it has to do with expanding the game or enforcing the game on the salesman that you manage. So you're playing the game. But you're also administrating uh, the game so what like what's the problem what's the problem with that so if you're listening to this and you're like i have a corporate job and like i have to do all this stuff to keep my job and like move up and score all these points but like what's wrong with that like what's wrong with like playing the game well the problem with playing the game is you're not really like making any in in my opinion i work to make money i get go out every day I sell a house, I flip a house, I remodel a house, I get a new client. I do those things to make money. I don't do those things to appease anyone. And I don't do those things to score brownie points or get a promotion. So if you're obsessed with trying to play the game, trying to administer the game, and trying to master the game, then you're not thinking about money. And you're not thinking about new opportunities. So... If I have a job every day and I'm worried about a deadline and some like great opportunity comes up, I'm not going to be paying attention because my attention is only going to be on my job and the game and the deadline and all this other stuff. So if a money-making opportunity comes along, you might not hit it up. For example, my dad's a salesman. He's been a salesman since 1986, I think, is when he started his sales career, and his job is he really doesn't it's sales and service so once he gets a customer he has to like service the account to in order to keep those sales and part of that is like a lot of logistics because a lot of the stuff he sells are frozen so not only are you selling things, you have to make sure that they're delivered, you have to make sure that they don't thaw, that it's the right amount of stuff, blah blah blah. So all the details like really add up. And one time somebody came to him and said, one of his customers actually, and said, Hey, would you want to like partner with me on like a on a fireworks stand? And at the time, you couldn't sell fireworks within the city limits of Omaha, Nebraska. So um, Omaha, I think. Is about right around eight hundred thousand people. Well, I guess we'll find out after the twenty twenty census. But it's you can say it's right about around like seven seventy five or eight hundred thousand people. So that's like the majority of people in Nebraska. So before before like a couple of years ago, you could only sell fireworks outside of the city limits. So if you had a fireworks stand and you had ground to sell it on, you could make a killing. So this guy came to my dad and was like, "Hey, you want a partner?" and my dad was like, well, I don't know. And the guy's like, well, each one of us will make 50 grand. It only, it, the, the fireworks stand only is up for like three weeks. He's like, I'll split everything like down 50-50. I'll front the money for the fireworks and everything. But my dad couldn't do it because my dad had a job that he had to worry about. And he couldn't say like, well, I'll take three weeks off of my job to make 50 grand. Now, 50 grand would be oh maybe like a half or like a third of like what my dad makes per year, you know. And at that, at that time, that was like 1998. So that's like a pretty sizable amount of money, but he couldn't do it. You know, there was no, even if he wanted to do it, there'd be no possible way. He didn't have three weeks of vacation that he could, he could like dip into. So he's missing opportunities um, by being obsessed with his job, which he had to keep, you know. I mean, he had a family, right? The other thing... Is if you have a job in corporate America, you're answering to shareholders. Now, if you work at a big corporation, you could have millions upon millions of shareholders. And guess what? If you're an employee there, they don't give a fuck about you. In fact, they actually want you eliminated or you they want your position combined with another position at the company. So the stock is more valuable. So you're working for people who really could care less about you. They don't even know you, Right. So all these things, that's a bad deal for you, especially if that's the only thing you're doing. So my question is, why aren't you going out on your own or at least starting a side hustle? And I know a lot of people, you know, like my dad, he couldn't do it right that That particular opportunity he could he couldn't do with the firework stand, and I understand, you know. If you have two kids and a wife that you're supporting, you can't be like, well, I'll I'll just step down from my job and hopefully make 50 grand on this fireworks stand. So I understand. But you need to have a long-term goal or some long-term strategy where you can take advantage of opportunities that that come up and a way to make money in case you don't graduate to the next level of the game or you get downsized or your job get shipped overseas, or blah, 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 or your company gets sold or bought out or merged. That's another thing that happens a lot. So you need a strategy for going out on your own someday, or at least doing something on the side as a safety net. And I imagine that one of the major reasons that you're not doing this is you're living in fear. And it could be a fear of lots of different things. It could be fear of failure. It could be fear of you just don't believe in yourself enough to do it. And I think one of the biggest things that is so scare scary about going out off on your own is it's so foreign because we've been programmed to go with the crowd since the day you started kindergarten, basically. You've basically been led around by teachers, parents, guidance counselors, things like that. You know, you like go to school and you like do well in school because you're like your parents and your teachers and guidance counselors said, well, you know, if you do, do good in school and you can get into college and you do good in college, then you can get a good job. So you've been programmed to get a good job or work a job really since day one. But if you look at a lot of the most successful people, they actually go against the crowd or they go outside of the crowd. Another thing that people are scared of or that I hear a lot is, well, like, what if, what if this, what if that? And like, you can play the what if game about anything, you know? Like today I bought a flip. Today me and my wife bought a house and we have another house that we sold two months ago, but it hasn't closed because of the coronavirus and under, and, um, Appraisers are scared to go in people's houses because c- of coronavirus. So that's cost us thousands of dollars, but we have to like keep going. Hasn't closed yet. It's supposed to close this week, but it's like, well, what if that doesn't close? What if this? What if that? It's like, you just have to like take steps in faith. You can't play the what if game, otherwise you'd never leave your house. You'd never leave your bed. You know, because it's like, well, what if I slip and fall out in the shower and paralyze myself? Well... You have to take risks in life. But I would say, like, think about it. Like, you live in in the United States of America, more than likely if you're listening to this. I know we have some listeners in (laughs) South Africa and Australia, which I appreciate. Keep listening. This still applies to you in a lot of ways. Well, it all applies to you. You can learn. So, okay, so, like, what if you went out on your own and you had a business and the business failed and you lost everything? There's so many social safety nets in America that, I mean, I, had a, I knew a guy that was on um, like food stamps and he was getting a tremendous amount of money per month. And then like he couldn't, like he said it was harder to get off than to get on. So things like that are there if you were to fail, but you're not going to fail and you can't think like that. So don't play the what if game. The other thing is you always hear, well, 90% of businesses close. Clo- close their doors within the first five years. Yeah, well, that's half of the story. If you do any research on that, you'll find out that it's never, almost never from lack of sales. It's from people getting burned out. And a lot of times what happens is people get, this is really what happened with me with my first business. I had a foreclosure trash out business and a foreclosure like um, maintenance company where I would maintain all these houses. I was making tons of money But I sold the business because I was burned out, because I was literally working every hour of every day. It wasn't from a lack of like money or sales or anything like that. It was just from like pure burnout. After like three years, you get tired of working every day. I mean, I think back one Easter morning, I was like boarding up a vacant house uh, in a bad part of town. And it was like, what, like what the hell am I doing, you know? So all those like little catchphrases are like things you hear like, oh, like this amount of business is closed in this amount of time, blah, blah, blah. Make sure that like you research where that's coming from and get the full story. So I would say that that's, that statistic statistic is true. Most people do fail, but it's not from a lack of sales or a lack of money. So what are some things we can do to overcome our fear? If, this, if it sounds good to you like, well, you know, I'm stuck in a corporate job or I'm stuck at like one employer and I'm scared because things are changing. I'm getting burned out or something else I've seen that I want to do, or I want to start a side gig. And one of the first things is like, just educate yourself. Just read, look what other people have done. You know, one of the first things I ever did when I went out and started my own business is I just started like reading like crazy. And I probably read between like how motivated I am. I probably read between like 25 and 40 books per year and one of the first books i ever read about like starting my own business and being an entrepreneur is a book called uh, the millionaire mind. and the millionaire mind is actually a follow up to another book called the millionaire next door. but this book really unpacks like the behaviors of people who are millionaires or multi well multimillionaires and like deca millionaires. and it goes across it goes like through their mindset, how they like make decisions, how they make decisions on what kind of businesses that they own, which is very important. So books like that really like give you like an inside because when you're like at a job and you don't do any education and you're like, think like, wow, like I know a guy that owns his own business and he's so successful and this and that there's, or like, you're like, oh, I know this guy like started his own business it went under, blah, blah, blah. So there's like a lot of like preconceived um, notions and preconceived ideas about like being an entrepreneur or being a small business owner that aren't necessarily true and there's a lot of information there I would just start like educating myself about things like that and then also just educate yourself about like different opportunities and and read other people's like stories about being an entrepreneur and for like the most most people you're going to be some you're going to be doing a business that's more like the millionaire next door, like the millionaire mindset, you know, not a lot of people are going to be like um, Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or things like that. So I I would say like, you can look at those people, but for the most part, like that's not who you're going to like grow up to be. Um, The other thing I would look at to overcome fear is just look at immigrants to the United States and like, almost all immigrant classes come here and they set up, they're either self-employed or they're business owners. And they do that because they usually come here with like uh, some sort of like background or skill from the country that they immigrate, immigrate from. And then the other thing is they don't have any credit and they don't have any usually formal education a lot of times. Or if they do have formal education, it's not the same as what you would need in the United States. So it's like they would have to like go back to college. Well, you can't like do that if you're not a lot of people are in the position to do that if they come here. So a lot of them just become self-employed or business owners. And everything you read about that first generation immigrants are almost always like more financially successful than Native Americans, not Native Americans like Indians, but people who were born in the United States. And one of the reasons that they're more successful is because they're self-employed or they run a small business. And if if you're self-employed or you run a small business, like you have so much more potential uh, to make money. And you have so much more potential to like save just on your taxes. Um, the other thing is kind of going back to the what if, like go down the what if rabbit hole. So like I kind of touched on earlier, it's like, well, what if I like have a business and it fails? Well, you could just go back to doing the same kind of job you were doing before. you know that happens all the time um but if you really or if you really believe in something and you and you have a background in it and you really like go after it, you're not gonna let, even like let yourself fail like when I started in my first business, like failing really wasn't an option for me because I didn't really have any background in anything except for like dabbling in insurance a little bit. But I didn't really have like a strong background in something I could fall back on. And I couldn't fall back on my college degree um, because I basically like pissed that down the drain by getting arrested. You can't really be a cop if you get arrested like right after you graduate college. And then the other thing I would say is if you're scared, just start your like small business or your side hustle. Well, obviously a side hustle. I mean, that's a part-time thing. But if you want to start a business then just start it part-time while you still still are employed full-time and then work it part-time until you're so busy working it part-time that you have to go to doing it full-time. So, like, if you're, like, one thing, like, a lot of people do is they, like, quit their full-time job to, like, sell real estate. It's, like, you can sell real estate part-time for a long time and make a lot of money part-time before you ever would have to jump to, like, going full-time. And I would say, like, do it part-time to anyone looking to like do like start a business is to do it part-time it just makes more sense because if you're like well I can't do this or I'm failing or I'm not making enough money then then your full-time job can like prop it up until you either figure it out um, or change it so just start it if you're that scared just start something part-time um, and you shouldn't obviously you shouldn't be scared to do a side gig that's something like completely different Um, But I would say like everyone needs a side gig. Um, So this kind of, the idea of the day isn't like super original, but I think it's really good. And it's something that you used to see like this a lot, but now you don't really see it. And like I said in the last couple episodes, you know, if you're going to go out and do something like start a small business or start a side hustle start something part-time and then turn it it into a business, I say you have to do something that you are attracted to, you have to do something that you like, and you have to do something that fits your personality. So this specific thing wouldn't fit my personality at all, but I know a lot of people, they would fit their personality and they can make a, a lot of money at it. So what it is, is it's a matchmaking service. So I know people like my age. I'm 34. (laughs) I'm 34. And a lot of people my age and younger, like they've never, I mean, you might see like millionaire have seen like millionaire matchmaker on TV or stuff like that. But for people like my age and younger, you really like don't see matchmaking services like, like professional one-on-one services. It's pretty much all like done with like an app. So like, eHarmony, Match.com, things like that. And that's what, like, a lot of people use. But if you, like, ask your single friends, because it's all, like, kind of, like, all these services pretty much came after, like, I was um, in a relationship and, like, engaged. But all those services, basically, those aren't really, like, real relationship services. Those are, like, hookup services, right? Like, Match.com, Match.com. I think, is that the one that you, like, swipe? And if you like the person's face, you, like, connect? I don't know. So, like, all those things are basically just, like, things to, like, hook up, you know? And I feel like millennials and, like, Zoomers and stuff, it's like they don't even know how to talk to each other. All they do is, like, text and, like, do shit online. Anyway, that's a different – I I don't want to date myself too much, by like shitting on people who don't know how to talk to each other. So, uh, Matt – but – This idea a matchmaking service, so this is really more like a personal thing. So this would be like one individual goes to a matchmaker and says like, you know, I'm single, here's like my interests, Um, here's the kind of person I'd like to be like be matched with, and then the matchmaker brings them like several different potential matches. So it's it's basically like Millionaire Matchmaker, if you've ever watched that show. I don't think it's on anymore. And these services have been around for a long time, but they kind of got like... I wouldn't say wiped out by all the apps and stuff, but you just like don't really hear about it that much. There is one in Omaha, and I know that the lady actually charges like a pretty hefty fee um, um, to use her services. And but I I feel like sometimes if you if you start a business or a service that like really goes against the grain of of like what's going on. So like everyone is like using Match or like using eHarmony. So this is like directly like against the grain, you know, this is like old school. So like another thing like um, that goes against the grain that's like really effective um, is, you know, like everyone is going to like digital marketing and like marketing on Facebook and stuff like that. And they're doing that a lot for real estate, but you get like way better responses by like sending shit in the mail if it's done correctly And the other thing you get tons of responses on um, is, like, going door to door and, like, knocking on people's door and, like, introducing yourself and saying, oh, I'm the realtor that works this neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. So that, like, basically, like, goes, like, totally against the grain of what people are used to. Obviously, I don't knock on people's doors because I'm a large man and no one would ever answer. But another agent that I know, her first year, she, like, knocked on people's door and said, do you want to sell your house? And she made, like, 200 grand. so I feel like a lot of these strategies, like going against the grain are like really good. And I think this is a really good one. And I think that people who are like really serious about like, hey, like I'm not just like, I'm not just doing this to like get laid. I'm not just doing this to like find a fuck buddy. I'm doing this to like really like have a relationship and hopefully like get married um, or have a long term relationship. I feel like that there is a market for this. And I also feel like people want a tailored, personal, hands-on experience with, with like, a matchmaker because I feel like you can't just, like, punch in, like, this is what I – like these kind of movies or, like, here's my political views. I mean, that doesn't really, like, get you – that doesn't really make you, like, compatible with another human being. I mean, it's, like, a different thing. So I think that people, like, want – Someone like a real human being they can sit down with and then say, like, go find me somebody who would like fit what I'm looking for. And I think this would work really well for people who are older. And when I say older, I mean 30 30 years old or or older um, who are single and anyone who's like like been divorced like once or multiple times. I think that that would be a good target market. And obviously older people have more money. You know, you're not gonna be going after like 25 year olds. So I did a little bit of research to kind of see because I know like I heard that the lady like locally here charges like I think like between like five and ten grand. I don't know exactly how much. So I went and like found some statistics of some like matchmakers, uh just like what I could pull offline. And I went to a website called thepennyhoarder.com. And buckle your seatbelts because this is a fucking insane what these people make. So Janice Spindell, her and her daughter own a company called Spindell Serious Matchmakers. They're based out of New York City. And Janice is one of the most experienced matchmakers in New York City. (laughs) Like Whatever that means. She charges men a premium for her services. She charges men from $50,000 to $250,000. Her son Carly charges between two, or excuse me, her her daughter Carly, who's a matchmaker as well at the firm, charges between $25,000 and $100,000. And then for women, um, they charge women a $25 application fee. And if they're accepted, they charge a one-time uh, Consultation fee from ranging from two hundred to a thousand dollars. So these people, these the daughters, they go after men as their main clients, and they charge men a huge fees for this. And I, it doesn't get into like how many matches they'll do for that. But if I'm paying somebody two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to like f- match me, I better get like really good white glove service and exactly like what I want. So they go after the men. With the uh, for the big dollars, and then they, I'm I'm guessing they're going after rich men, and then they're going after like females, younger, like attractive females, charging them a lesser fee. So together uh, with their team, this mother and daughter, uh, the Spindell Company, in 2015 brought in between five and seven million dollars in revenue. That is ridiculous that is a ton of money for basically setting up people on dates that's crazy so they're in new york city there's another lady um and she's out of uh she's out of chicago and like i said this article was written in 2015 she's had her business since 2009 her, her name's uh, stephanie safran and her rate starts at 3000 dollars which gets a man six to eight matches over the course of a year. And for women, she charges a, a rate, an a la carte rate of fifty to two hundred and fifty dollars per introduction. So she's kind of doing the same thing, um, but with a less, not as big a fees. But it sounds like she um she does like a, a lot more volume. In addition, she also offers a slew of other services, including dating dating co- dating coaching. Um, Which she charges fourteen hundred dollars for six sessions of, and she said that she makes um, over six figures a year, like no problem. Um, It didn't say how much she makes a year, but she just said over six figures or six figures. So obviously, there's a pretty like good sized market for this. If you can make five to seven million dollars doing this. In any market, I mean, obviously in New York City, the prices for everything are inflated, but I mean that 's completely insane. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to be set up on dates. so what you would do if you wanted to do this is you would go and you would charge the bigger upfront fees for the more eligible bachelor or bachelorettes so um obviously, like there 's a lot of men out there that have money that are single, but there 's also a lot of women out there that have money that are single, so I wouldn't just, um, you know, I wouldn't just go after the men for big money. I would go after both because sometimes like, um, you know, maybe women are having a hard time. Maybe they're like, you know, like a high powered attorney. They just don't have enough time. So this is basically for people. You're going to want to find people have a lot of money, but they don't have enough time to go out and like really mingle and then what you're going to want to do is obviously match them with interesting, attractive singles of the opposite sex. And you can obviously make a lot of money doing this. Then you can also like charge for coaching, dating coaching. Um, I've also seen like where they do like wardrobe coaching, other things like that. So you could like really tack on um, a heck of a lot of stuff like that. Um uh, and you could like, you could like branch out and do like speed dating. I mean, it'd be like never ending. Um, and a lot of these, like, I know these, like the, the mother and daughter team that made five to $7 million, they also have like kind of like understudies in other cities that they have like trained for like a cut. So they have like a team that's, so it's more than just the two of them. So they do have like a team. So it's obviously scalable. So I really like this. I mean, you're basically, you're just consult, you're basically just doing consulting and you're doing recruiting. So if you're like a consultant or like a recruiter, HR person or a salesperson, I feel like you can do this. So I thought that was a really like interesting, like idea that kind of goes against the grain, has huge potential as far as money. Um, and I think like has a really good, like good market of people that were just burned out with the like online bullshit. So that's the idea. That's something that you could start part-time or as a side gig. So kind of tying it together with kind of the message of the day. So we're going to like really shift gears here. We're going to really shift gears and talk about a a business for sale that I really like. I like it for a lot of, a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons I like it is it is because it's so boring. It's such like a cut and dried thing. It's like super simple. It's also in like not sleep, not not, I want to say sleazy, but it's in like, well, I'll just like get into it and we'll kind of talk about it. So what it is, is it's a government and commercial contracting business for sale in Virginia. The asking price of this is $1.5 million. Cash flows 568,000. So they're asking about three times of uh, cash flow for it. (coughs) What it is, is a construction company 20-year-old government and commercial construction contracting business started as a home repair and remodeling business and has become very successful um, today working with the government and in large um, businesses. They create about 80% of their revenue from both local and federal government work and the other 20% from commercial work. So for those of you who have never looked into like doing work as a contractor for the government, you can charge ridiculous prices. I don't know why the government pays for – so like out in the real world, if you're like an electrician or an electrical like contracting firm, let's say – I don't know the exact figures, but I'm just going to like use some examples – Let's say you can charge a commercial client $75 an hour for your electricians. If you're like on base or you're doing government work, for some reason you can charge like 100 to 125. You can always get more. I don't know why. Here in Omaha, there's Strategic Air Command uh, in Bellevue, which is a suburb of Omaha, and they have Strategic Air Command like I don't really know exactly what they do there. They do like a lot of planning for the air force and it's like a massive, like secure installation. That's like subterranean and all this weird stuff. And I knew some guys who were electricians and they usually got paid like 30 or 35 bucks, but then they go like go work on base and they would get paid like 65. So just like totally crazy. Their thing is like government jobs. If you're a construction contractor and you can get on, they like last forever. They go on and on and on. And once you, like, kind of get in with them, then it's easy to stay on. So working for the government as a, as a contractor is really good. Also working for a government, also having a construction company working for the government in Virginia around Washington, D.C. is good. Because the money in Washington, D.C. is always flowing. So that's why I like this. So like I said, asking $1.5 million, Give me some more stats on it. They lease a 3,000-square-foot building. They have 18 employees. Um, all of the equipment is included in the sale. The nice thing about this is the seller really believes in this company and really believes that a new owner um, could, could keep this thing successful and keep it um lucrative, which I do too, because like how st- you don't have to be a genius to like work for the government in Washington, D.C. and make a lot of money. <clears throat> so because of that, he is willing to do owner financing and he is willing to finance $500,000 of the $1.5 million asking price. He's also willing to stay on for three months for training, He's selling the business because he's retiring. And this guy has been running this business out of his house for 20 years. And basically, all the owner does is he goes out on bids and is responsible for like the management of the employees. Like I said, the reason that um, he's selling it is retirement. So that's like the, basically the best reason you can have. If you're interested in this business, want some more information, call Steve Sigman. He's at Trans World Business Advisors. He can be reached at 757 821 3002. I know in the, the last episode, and I kind of talked about like why I think you should have a business. And at the beginning of this episode, I said like, you know, you shouldn't just have one job. You should maybe consider like owning a business. And I always think, and I've always thought this ever since I really looked into it, because about two years ago, I looked at like buying um, a trash company, like a door-to-door traditional, like pick up your trash kind of company in like a smaller town in Nebraska where I wouldn't have like a lot of competition. And that was really the first time I ever looked at buying a business. I had sold a business prior to that, but that was kind of a different deal because the business was like pretty small. So I really have like started like looking into like buying a business and it is a really good deal. It's a really good deal because a lot, there's a lot of like baby boomers who are retiring and their kids, for whatever reason, like don't want to take over the family business. They want to like go be doctors, lawyers, accountants, things like that. And, and they've seen their parents like run a business and be, and they're like, I don't want to like have to deal with all that responsibility. Obviously, they get a rude wake up call when they go out into the real world and and they say, oh, well, I'm making a fifth of what my dad made and I have all the same responsibilities he did. And I have no freedom. So kids aren't taking over their parents' businesses. So these business owners, like, they want to retire. They don't necessarily, they don't want to just walk away from it. You know, when you build up a business over 20 years, there's a lot of you in that business. And you don't want to just throw it away. You want to, like, have a legacy and, and be able to, like, tell your kids, your grandkids, like, yeah, I started that company. Um, 20 years ago and it, my company provided like all these jobs for people. We did all these like great things around town for the community. So all these people like want to sell their businesses and a business is really hard to sell. You know, I think only, I want to say like only like one out of like 20 or one out of 50 businesses that are for sale actually get sold. And it's really sad because like this business has 18 employees, you know, and I guarantee you, like if you ran this business, those employees, for the most part, especially the ones that have been there for a long time, they're not going to need like tons and tons of like management. They're mostly just going to need you to like stay out of their way for the most part. But for you, like if, if you want to buy a business, it's a, like a fantastic time to buy a business, because money is really cheap, and we're going like, to go in, get into that in a minute. Money is really cheap. Right now, the economy's dipped a little bit. But as soon as everyone gets over this coronavirus bullshit, it's just going to like skyrocket back up because there's so much pent up demand. You know, all these uh, unemployment numbers are out there. But if you really like dig into the unemployment numbers, like where my dad works, they just furloughed a bunch of people because they're like, well, you can make more money on unemployment than you can at your job because your commissions are so low. So they just like furloughed a bunch of people. Those aren't really like, those are jobless claims, but it's like those people are going to have a job when everything opens up again. And not, there's not a lot of, like, I'm like really like an evangelist for buying a business and there, you like never hear anything about like buying a business and like how good it is. So let's just go through the numbers of this business because I think people like really miss the boat because they're like, oh, I, I got to get like a, I gotta get got to get a bank loan. I got to like put my own money down. I got to have like, Deal with the seller and blah, blah, blah. And every single like financial business out there that you read about, like Goldman, Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, even like GE, like huge companies like this, they have like a private equity arm that goes around buying small businesses and like putting managers in place to run them because they make money. So let's look at this business this business the guy is asking 1.5 million and he's he's willing to do a $500,000 seller carry back so let's just like run the numbers quickly on this cuz i want to like really illustrate like how good of a deal this is <clears throat> and oh by the way if you think that like what this guy is saying is bullshit when you when you put an when you put a deal together like this they obviously have to open the books and you're going to hire a CP, like a certified finan- or a you're going to hire an accountant to go like, comb over all this guy's books to make sure it's not bullshit. And you also have a $500,000 um, insurance policy in case the guy is lying. And if he's already willing to put up a third of what this business is worth, he's probably not lying, okay? Why would you do that if you're full of shit? Now, the diamond business that we talked about a little bit ago where the guy was not willing to put up any money, that's probably something going on there. So anyway, this guy's willing to, <clears throat> to hold $500,000 back. And let's say you negotiate a payback of five years at 6%. So that's $9,667 per month that you're like paying to the seller per month for five years. So that leaves you with an additional $1 million that you have to get a loan on. So let's say you get an SBA loan. And these are not exact numbers. These are just like example numbers. You can go to like um, do your own research with the SBA to see what like what you would qualify for, what the business that you're going to be buying would qualify for and like get a payment worked out. So I'm just using some like kind of um, example numbers to kind of illustrate my point here. So a million dollar SBA loan, 10 years, and that's going to be based on a 10 year treasury plus plus a rate. So (coughs) for this example, the 10-year treasury is 0.64%. And I'm just putting on like the highest rate that the SBA website had. So the highest rate that they showed was 4.32% plus the 10-year treasury, which is 0.64%. So that works out to a a, a 4.96%. So your payment per month on that $10 million would be $10,587.01. So your total loan payment per month is $20,254.01, but the business makes $47,351.17 per month after everything else. So the free cash flow that they're showing is 568 dollars thousand two hundred and fourteen dollars. So even with all of paying back all the loans per year, um that is still gonna leave you at the end of the year um, as the owner, you could take a salary up to $325,165.92. Even with paying the loans and paying your employees and the overhead uh, and paying gas and the, of the vehicles that are associated with business, and paying insurance and all of that stuff. So the first year, if you could qualify for these loans, the first year operating it, you'd be making over three hundred thousand dollars a year. Oh, and by the way, if you if you said, well, I want to like play it safe and only take a hundred and fifty thousand dollar salary. You could put the other $175,000 against those loans and pay them down fast. So what if you could pay the loans down in five or six years and after that you're making $600,000 a year to run this business that this guy's ran out of his house for 20 years? I hate to burst your bubble, but that's a hell of a lot more money than most employees ever going to see. Because you have to think about... If you think about like a corporate structure, obviously the higher you go, the less people there are. So you have less of a chance to like go up that high. But if you comb through businesses for sale, there's tons and tons and tons of businesses for sale, and a lot of businesses you can find have cash flow over five or six hundred thousand dollars. And then you're like, well, what if I couldn't like um, qualify for the loan? Well, if you couldn't qualify for the loan, you could always bring in investors, and. I think we'll do like another episode kind of like on bringing in investors to do, to buy businesses or to like do small loans on businesses because like an SBA loan isn't super hard to um, qualify for. And obviously different businesses are easier or harder to qualify for depending on what they are. But I just want to illustrate that. So it's like if you bought this business, you could be making $300,000 a year right off the bat. So real quick, let's get to the three critiques. (laughs) And there's going to be some surprises in here for you. Bingo bongo. So the first one, someone asked me, they want to start a garden center. So like a greenhouse, like selling plants, trees, mulch. Uh, Yeah, love it. Every single garden center, every spring is totally packed with people. Now, if you're in somewhere like Nebraska, it's going to be real seasonal. But... If you live in somewhere like Nebraska where there's snow on the ground for so long, obviously you could sell ice melt and stuff like that. But when there's snow on the ground, once the snow melts and it gets pretty nice outside, everyone wants to work on their lawn. So like today, I was loading up my stuff to like go work on a house. And like every house around me, people were out working working on their lawns, putting down fertilizer, putting down mulch, like planting stuff. So I think like a garden center is a great idea. If you could control your overhead and you could get things sold... I think it's good. I also think you could start out small and like work your way up. The other good thing is like if you're into like gardening and like planting, you know how to like raise things up to sell them. So I think that's a a really good idea, especially if you get somewhere where like the rent isn't too bad. So I like Garden Center. That's a good idea. The second one is... Someone was asking me about, they're like really into golf and they're a pretty good golfer. And they were like, well, how could I like, like, how could I like get involved in golf and like make money? And we were talking about it and he was like, well, I could like be a golf coach. And I was like, oh, like, I don't know. I, I don't really know anything about that. I don't play golf. I took golf lessons when I was a kid and like played league golf and I fucking suck. I am terrible at golfing. And I think one of the reasons I suck at golfing so bad is because I can't like focus. It's really hard for me to focus on like one thing for like four hours without thinking about other things or like getting distracted. So when I play golf, I usually like do like pretty good for like three or four holes and then I totally lose interest. Um, And I feel like the harder I try in golf, the worse I do. So if I, like, really try to, like, hit a long ball long, then it just, like, totally, like, cut. Like, I don't have time. I just don't have time to golf. I don't like it. So I did a little research into, like, but a lot of people love golf. Like, love golf, men and women. Um, So I did a little, like, research into what kind of money can a golf coach make. So on the low end, like the cheapest golf coaches will charge $25 per lesson. And I believe a lesson is about an hour. And then on the high end is about $150 per lesson. And that's like $25 to $150 per lesson. And that's like for like a normal golf coach. What do I mean about normal? So like if you went to like a regular like course, or if you like just found someone like online locally, they're going to probably charge between $25 and $150 per lesson. But if you're really good, if you're the top 10% and if you want to ever make tons of money in anything, all you, you don't have to be the best in the world. You just have to be in the top 10%. So if you're in the top 10% of anything, you're going to be making a hell of a lot of money. So the top golf coaches in the world, this is according to Golf Digest, which yes, Golf Digest is a real thing. The the most expensive golf coach is a guy named Dave Peltz, P-E-L-Z. He charges $20,000 per day for one-on-one coaching. The number one coach, he's actually not the most expensive. His name is, according to Golf Digest, his name is Butch Harmon. He charges $1,000 per hour for golf lessons. So the lowest is $25. The highest you could ever charge is $1,000 per hour. So, you would have to really like, if you could do like four to five lessons, if you could do four to five lessons like per day, every day, or more, and you were getting at least 125 bucks, like you can make a pretty good living doing that. Obviously, like you'd want to get, on the higher end. And the other thing is like, if you live in a cold area, like Omaha, it's going to, you're going to have like a really struggle to like do it every day. So it's going to like potentially be seasonal. So if you're like in Omaha, I would say like, that's a no, because you're not going to get enough people. You're not going to be able to make enough money just because of time. You're going to be trading time for money too much. It is a talent thing. So you are going to have to be personally like coaching the people. You're not going to be able to like coach coaches to do that. But if you're somewhere like Florida, Arizona, or like Texas where you can play golf all the time and there's enough market for it there, like I say, maybe if you're like a really good, like if you like play on the PGA Tour and like even if you sucked, but you played on the PGA Tour, even better if you like won some tournaments, but you still like kind of sucked. If you could like get into coaching like professional golfers, obviously that's where the money's at. So that's a maybe for me. And the third one, this is going to be a surprise. A guy I know, his parents own a restaurant. And he was talking to me about taking over the restaurant. Now, this is going to shock you. I said, absolutely take the restaurant over. Now, I know that's crazy. But hear me out. This guy's parents have ran this restaurant for 30 years. And it's crowded every... It's like in kind of a downtown area. Every... They're open for lunch and dinner, and every day it's crowded. There's a line there every single day, and there's been a line there every single day for 30 years. Um, It fucking prints money. Yes, dude. Take it over. Like, what are you thinking? They've had, like, a ton of – a lot of, like, the same employees for the entire time that – not the entire time, but they have lots of, like, long-term employees. Everything, all of the, like – everything's worked out. They have the like name, they have the like menu people want. It's like ethnic food. Not a lot of places you can get it in town. They have a stellar reputation. They have tons of good reviews. They're on social media. Everyone in town like knows this place. It's a fucking no-brainer. Dude, I would take over that restaurant if I was him in a heartbeat. And he's like, "Well, it's like a lot of hard work." Yeah, dude, you only have to do you only have to do it 15 or 20 years and then you can retire because Number one, it makes tons of money. Like I said, even now, like, even when they were doing takeout, they, they were doing so much takeout that a couple, like, times uh, during the COVID-19 thing, they had to, like, shut down, like, taking orders because they were, like, selling so much food. The other thing is um, people know it so much, he could, like, open another, like, location um, or do delivery, which they don't do. I mean, so... Yes, like yeah, because there's like not a like a big chain that makes this kind of food either. And their prices are good, like yes. And then the other thing is like he wants to like go do like a different job, like a corporate job. And I'm like, "Dude, no. No fucking way. Dude, you can like be he was a cook there forever. And it's like, "Dude, you could be like cooking, like cooking in sweatpants, like not don't even worry about it. You know half the people that come in. No, it's it's too easy not to do. And you know, I mean, you know the business inside and out. It, like, it's a no brainer. So yeah, absolutely do that. Like, take over the restaurant. Don't even, don't even think about it. I know it's kind of surprising because I shit on restaurants a lot, but like one in like I don't know one in like a hundred. Like my dad, my dad has like had so many like customers that like didn't make any money or like went bankrupt. But like I would say like one in like a couple hundred, they print money and they print. They make tons of money and ha- like a lot of it's cash. So it's like at the beginning of the year, they're like, all right, we're going to make $100,000, like no matter what, even though the restaurant makes three or 400, you know what I mean? Or like they'll say like, oh, well, we're only going to make, we're going to make $200,000 this year. when they will really make five. So yes, like if you have something that's that good, yeah, just do it. So that's a yes, obviously. Guys, thanks for stopping by. I uh, hope you got a lot out of this episode i I really felt like I jammed a, like a lot of information in it. Um, if you guys have any questions you, know, you want me to look at a business for you you want to you need some like business ideas you want a business idea critiqued you 're thinking about buying a business, thinking about selling a business. reach out to me reach out to me on Facebook um, also on Instagram uh, Zach herger idea addict on Facebook and just idea addict on Instagram. You guys can also shoot me an email i 'll put my email in the show notes. And we'll catch you guys next time. Thanks.